You're going to love this. Just love it. Papal Conclave? Papal Conclave? I thought it was a PayPal Conclave. Who the hell did I send all that money to? I got totally ripped off. Oh! Yeah, stuck in the middle with you on Pope Day. Glad to have you here. Great to be back live on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, and 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org and on the Stitcher radio app and the TuneIn app on your smartphone, particularly if you uh, miss any portion of our broadcast today. Yes, this is the broadcast. I am Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellow, back live after uh, several weeks off in fundraising exile. It's great to be back. Of course, that means we've got a whole lot of uh, catching up to do today. But I do want to thank uh, all of the listeners who supported the uh, latest KPFK Fund Drive to allow us to continue our work here, to allow us to continue to stay on your public airwaves. Thank you so much for the support over the last several weeks. And for tolerating my absence or for celebrating my absence, whatever the case may be. As I say, we got a whole lot to catch up on uh, today alone. It's a big news day today alone, but over the past few weeks, a lot of the stories that we have been covering here uh, on the Bradcast and at bradblog.com have had some... Um, some new beats, let's say, let's say, in those stories, and so we're going to try to catch up with as much as we can, but uh, having to do with the Voting Rights Act, having to do with uh, James O'Keefe and Acorn, I'll get having to do with drones, going to try to get in a lot today, but before we do, yes, ladies and gentlemen, apparently we do have a new pope. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Yes, the white smoke has risen above the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City. The world celebrates the newest pope of them all. Uh, let's go to uh, Desi Doyen and get some scoop on who this new pope is and why it is we're playing Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, our uh, our producer Desi Doyen. Hey, Des, you got the... The, 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 the Pope the, scoop? The Pope poop. <laughs> the Pope poop. Pope we, are now, we are now at peak Pope. Yes, so, we are. All uh, the jokes are flying fast. Yes, they are. As a matter of fact, there was uh, jokes on Twitter. And by the way, you can tweet me throughout the show at the Brad blog. The jokes were uh, flying fast and furious today about the uh, ballots disappearing from uh, Florida. So they had a problem. Uh, they couldn't uh, announce the winner. Karl Rove wouldn't admit when they finally had a Pope. And of course, no joke here, but you can check Brad blog. We wrote about this last week for a thousand years they have been using hand counted publicly hand counted paper ballots 
to select popes, the gold standard for democracy, what I would love to see across this country, what I'd love to see here in, in Los Angeles, here in L.A. County, and maybe we will in the near future. We're going to be talking about that uh, in the weeks ahead, I hope, as L.A. County is going to a new uh, voting system. So I hope they'll consider hand-counted paper ballots. But in this case, we have hand-counted Papal ballots, not PayPal, and not and not PayPal. So who who's our uh, who's our new pope? I know I was overlooked once again. Who do we have, Desi Doyle? Uh, he's his Jorge <laughs> Mario Bergoglio from Argentina. He's seventy six years old. He's now Pope Francis, the first to ever use the name Francis. They said in some of the commentary that it was because he was naming himself essentially after St. Francis of Assisi. Um, he's the first Jesuit pope. He's the first pope from the Americas, which essentially means the first pope from the Western Hemisphere. So he, is he the first non... Well, they, some people said he's the first non-European pope, but he's got this... Italian-sounding name. What, what was well, he's this? the first non-European pope in more than a thousand years since the eighth century. He's since the eighth century. He's the uh, first non-European pope. But okay. um, so yeah, and also with the name Bergoglio, I don't know what his uh, ethnic background is, but it's Italian. Like I'm going with Italian. He might be, you know, Spanish or Italian of European descent. Yes. So you know, even though he's a the first Latin America pope, that he's also still European. Descent. Okay, well, one step at a time. We finally yeah. got out of Europe. We're now in the uh, in the Americas, for whatever it's worth, with right. Pope Francis the first. Uh, now, uh, now your new pope. So now you could turn off CNN and all of that crap uh, and their 24-hour smoke cameras uh, above the Sistine Chapel and listen to some actual news. Pope Francis is in place, right? Yep. Okay. Thank you, Des. And if if anything happens, if this pope should suddenly uh, resign, like the last one. Feel free to break into the broadcast and, and let us know if he quits. Will do. Okay. Thank you very much. And she'll be back with us in a little bit, uh, as usual, for the Green News Report coming up later in the broadcast. Okay. Uh, so we got the Pope out of the way, the papal ballots out of the way. Uh, Voting Rights Act, we're going to be talking about that because there was a huge hearing. I warned you about it before we took a break for the uh, for the fundraiser that it would be coming up before the Supreme Court and Antonin Scalia did not disappoint in his comments during that hearing I've got some thoughts on his comments that are going to be coming up later in the show you're not going to want to miss that but first uh, some big news in this uh, story that we have been reporting here and at bradblog.com for a long time the story of the fake acorn hoax perpetrated by James O'Keefe and his partner Hannah Giles, uh, and now the late Andrew Breitbart over at his phony news site. Um, you know, as you know, as many of you probably know, uh, this thing, the entire... Uh, Pimp hoax was, in fact, a hoax. These tapes that uh, succeeded in putting Acorn out of business, this four-decade-old community organization that uh, fought against predatory lending practices, that helped low and middle, millions of low and middle income American people, uh, families get housing loans for the first time, helped millions of them to sign up to vote legally, which, in my opinion, is why they were targeted for so long by the Republican Party. They were put out of business after this fake sting, as Jimmy O'Keefe likes to call it, uh, in a bunch of offices, a bunch of acorn offices around the country, including out here in California. And, of course, uh, most famously, uh, people remember James O'Keefe dressing up as a pimp, going into these acorn offices, 
speaking to these acorn workers who were just so stupid they couldn't even tell that this little 23-year-old skinny white punk wasn't really a 1970s-era exploitation pimp. That's how dumb the acorn workers were. At least... That was the story that you were told. That was the story that certainly ran round the clock on Fox News. But not just the right-wing outlets like Fox News and Breitbart.com. This was reported uh, pretty much, as I just explained it to you, in the New York Times. And, in fact, it took the Brad blog some six months to finally get corrections from the New York Times. Uh, as we proved at some point going frame by th- frame through some of these videos that, in fact, uh, James O'Keefe never dressed as a pimp in those offices, in those highly doctored, in those deceptively edited tapes. But he also never presented himself as a pimp. He was simply the girl, the, I'm sorry, the boyfriend of Hannah Giles, who was dressed like a prostitute. Um, and he, he was, uh, the story was he was trying to get her out from a house where she was being uh, essentially uh, robbed and beaten and threatened with death by a dangerous pimp. So James O'Keefe was never the pimp, and yet that's the way the story was told. In the meantime, all of these workers <clears throat> in these videos were uh, were misrepresented. Their comments were taken out of context. They were made to look like they were into uh, you know, trafficking uh, children, prostitutes uh, from across the border. And finally, finally, we have at least a little bit of accountability in this story. Uh, Juan Carlos Vera, an acorn worker down in San Diego, was one of the folks caught on these uh, on these tapes and uh, who lost his job afterwards. The tapes with uh, James O'Keefe and Hannah Giles made it look like uh, Juan Carlos Vera was trying to smuggle, was going, was willing to help them smuggle underage prostitutes across, across the Mexican border. Of course, it was all nonsense. And in fact, Vera was playing along with the scam and taking photographs of the pair, in fact, so that, as the California Attorney General later found, Juan Carlos Vera could contact uh, law enforcement and report what these two were up to. Vera did lose his job, but he did file a lawsuit against James O'Keefe and Hannah Giles, and that lawsuit has now come to a conclusion. Last week, James O'Keefe, the professional liar and con man, agreed to settle this lawsuit uh, and uh, paid and agreed to pay one hundred thousand dollars to Juan Carlos Vera, whose reputation was trashed and ruined throughout this process. Uh, Hannah Giles also settled uh, last year, last summer. Uh, you can read about all of that at bradblog.com. We've got great deta- We've got a, a great number of details on it. But to give you an idea of how this scam worked, here's just a, a quick clip from the uh, San Diego Acorn tapes uh, in which James O'Keefe asks Juan Carlos Vera if, in fact, this conversation will be confidential. She's in a unique line of business. She's in prostitution. And uh, we're bringing in some some underage girls in from... Is this a victory for you? Uh, Is that... Oh, I think we're... That uh, that's uh, a little confusing there. Uh, I think we mixed up a couple of clips. Basically, O'Keefe says to Vera... Uh, so my girlfriend has an unusual job. She's a prostitute. He asks Juan Carlos Vera, can I pull up a chair? And then he says, this is confidential, right? 
And Juan Carlos Vera says, yes, yes, it is. So he had uh, a promise of confidentiality there. And because of that promise of confidentiality, this secret wiretapping that he did during this meeting was uh, in violation of the Invasion of Privacy Act in California. Now, Vera was on the Ed Schultz show last Friday, I believe it was, or Thursday or Friday after the uh, the settlement. He was asked by Ed Schultz whether, and we'll see if this clip uh, works properly, but he was asked by uh, Ed Schultz if uh, if this was a victory for you, if he uh, if he felt good about this $100,000 settlement. Is this a victory for you? Mm, yes, I think so. Only I, I feel sad because Acorn not exists anymore, and Acorn, they... They have a good, very good programs. That's why. They had good programs indeed, and yet they were put out of business uh, for no good reason. The Democrats in Congress defunded them. Uh, Barack Obama signed that legislation that uh, defunded them, and uh, then their private donations dried up as well, and the good work that they had done, uh, unfortunately, was no more. Joining us right now to talk about this settlement and all of the uh, issues involved is Eugene Iredale. He's the San Diego attorney of Juan Carlos Vera, and uh, we're delighted to have you here on KPFK. Welcome, uh, Gene Iredale, to the broadcast. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you. All right. Is uh, uh, Do you view this uh, as a victory? Did Juan Carlos Vera, your client, get everything he wanted out of this uh, settlement that was struck just last week? Well, I think that Juan Carlos got everything he could have reasonably asked for from the lawsuit, given the law and given what happened to him. Unfortunately, I don't think ultimately it's a victory, because if you look at the entire situation, what occurred was that an entire organization and many hundreds of people were destroyed on the basis of fragmentary and occasionally, and sometimes more than occasionally, misleading excerpts which were systematically dribbled out by Andrew Breitbart and then broadcast by Fox News. So that if you look at the battle, well, we won a battle. If you look at the war, I'm afraid that Mr. O'Keefe and the right-wing patrons that sponsored him they won the war, and Acorn was the casualty of that war. Acorn and the truth was the casualty of that war. Explain exactly the uh, California Invasion of Privacy Act, also known as the wiretap law out here in California, or uh, Penal Code Section 623. This was uh, th- this has both a, a criminal and a civil element to it, and for some reason, uh, James O'Keefe and Hannah Giles were given immunity from criminal pros- uh, prosecution, by the California Attorney General, who was then uh, Jerry Brown at the time, in exchange for the raw videotapes, the unedited videotapes. Uh, the Attorney General found that the tapes, in fact, were all highly and deceptively edited. He found that there were n- there was no criminality seen in those tapes by any of the ACORN workers, but that O'Keefe uh, himself may have violated the Privacy Act, but he couldn't uh, prosecute him on a criminal basis, however, that did leave him open to a civil suit, which is what uh, your client brought successfully against him. But explain what exactly is the California Invasion of Privacy Act. Sure. There is a statute in the Penal Code 632 which makes it illegal. As a matter of fact, makes it a felony or a misdemeanor in the discretion of the prosecution 
to tape record a conversation without the consent of the other party, assuming that that conversation is confidential. Although the case law construing the statute makes clear that confidential doesn't mean what it may mean in common parlance. If you and I are speaking and I expect you to go out and tell a third party everything I told you, but I believe that you're not tape recording the conversation, that conversation is nonetheless confidential for purposes of the statute. Mm -hmm. And if you tape record it without my knowledge or consent, you've violated a criminal statute. In addition, there's a separate section, 632.7 of the Penal Code, that confers on a victim of this violation a private right of action that has a minimum damage amount that can be awarded of $5,000 for each violation of the statute. And uh, actual damages may be awarded if they're in excess of $5,000. And so in this case, what occurred was that there were four separate ACORN employees tape recorded in California, one in San Bernardino, one in San Diego, and two in Los Angeles mm -hmm. County. And uh, after the demise of ACORN, Governor Schwarzenegger at the time requested that Jerry Brown, who was then Attorney General, conduct an investigation of ACORN to determine whether ACORN had violated any laws. And in the course of that, I think the Attorney General, in a display of nonpartisan objectivity, decided also to look into the conduct of O'Keefe mm -hmm. and Giles and see in that context whether they did anything that was inappropriate. In order to conduct that investigation that he was asked to conduct by Schwarzenegger, mm -hmm. uh, the Attorney General felt that he had to get complete copies of the videotapes because O'Keefe had posted audio tapes, supposedly complete copies of the audio tape, right. but only selected and edited portions of the videotapes online. And what Breitbart, who was working with O'Keefe, gave to Fox News was a highly edited and, as the Attorney General's report found, somewhat or more than somewhat misleading excerpt from the interviews that were done. In order to have O'Keefe and uh, Giles turn over complete copies of the videotapes, the Attorney General felt it best to compel them to do so. He could only compel the production by giving them immunity from criminal prosecution. Well, he could have subpoenaed them, could he not? A lot of people have asked about this. Uh, he, he could have subpoenaed them, but then as uh, James O'Keefe was pretending to be a journalist, do you then get into a shield law issues? Was that the concern? Uh, you, you may not even know what was going through Jerry Brown's head, but I, I've always wondered why he didn't just subpoena these uh, videotapes uh, unless he was worried about well, now we get into a situation where it looks like the uh, state attorney general is roughing up a journalist, even though James O'Keefe is, is anything but that. Well, I think that that was one of the considerations that he may have had. Was there a shield law issue or alternatively, would there be an accusation made that he was trying to interfere with the First Amendment rights of devout right wingers uh -huh. and 
was he doing so for inappropriate or partisan reasons? I think probably it may have been a simpler reason, simply that if he had issued a subpoena, they could have simply said we declined to produce them on the grounds of the Fifth Amendment. Right. And since neither of them were corporations, uh, that would have been sufficient. Now, I suppose he could have issued a search warrant, but neither of them were in California at the time, ah. so it would have been hard executing that search warrant may have even been difficult logistically to obtain it in the first instance. Well, a Andrew Breitbart was in California before he died. He, he uh, lived out here in Los Angeles. Uh, and he, as we learned during the course of your uh, trial or, or discovery and depositions with James O'Keefe, Andrew Breitbart actually knew about the recording of these, uh, the, the secret wiretapping of these ACORN uh, individuals out here in California where it is illegal. And it's not illegal in all states, by the way, to do this type of secret recording. But Breitbart knew about it. He knew about it here in California before the, uh, the secret wiretapping uh, interviews took place. Why was Breitbart not, A, named in your suit, uh, in your civil suit, or B, as far as you know, brought up on criminal charges because he did not get uh, criminal immunity from the uh, California Attorney General. Well, actually, there are probably three reasons for that. The first is that even though I think you're making a reasonable and a fair inference from what we were able to find out, it's not entirely clear that he signed on to the plan before the videotapes were made. And there is case law that says although it's illegal to tape record or videotape someone in violation of the statute, after that is made, the publication of it is perfectly permissible and might even be constitutionally protected. So there was an issue about the timing, and since the only people we could really rely on to get the facts of that were O'Keefe and Breitbart, we were in a difficult position with going forward. The second issue has to do with the relatively short statute of limitations that applies to uh, civil action under 632. That statute of limitations is no more than two years and under a strict reading of some other statutes may only be one year. And arguably, had we sued Breitbart, it, by the time we found out enough to give us the basis filing the lawsuit, the statute of limitations had run. Had expired. Had expired. <laughs> and then the third reason is that we think that Breitbart may have been able to evade responsibility by manipulating the issue of his knowledge. That is, he would say, hey, I didn't find out about it until after these tapes were done. Or, alternatively, I did not associate myself with the actual videotaping. I wasn't involved in that. I just said that I would broadcast it thereafter. <laughs> well, Now, query, query yeah. here, here's what we did find out. That at some point afterwards, as a matter of fact, in September, and at or about the time of the Fox News broadcast, which was carefully orchestrated to have maximum misleading and powerful political effects mm -hmm. to try to do ACORN in. Right. Brightboard signed contracts with both of the participants, uh, O'Keefe and Ms. Giles, 
offering them or giving them $60,000 a year to write a blog. And he ultimately ended up paying O'Keefe $65,000. He chipped in a $5,000 bonus. And it was fairly clear that that was the quid pro quo for their having taped and then provided the tapes to him for the editing and then the conveying it to Fox News. That great journalist, that great investigative <laughs> journalist, Sean Hannity. Uh, I, and don't you go uh, attacking Sean Hannity. He's a great journalist. and uh, has some of the finest hair I've ever seen. Yes, he does. So uh, Andrew Breitbart ends up paying $125,000 for these tapes, essentially. Uh, these guys uh, now end up, uh, between them, uh, paying back at least 150000 back to uh, Vera, just this one acorn well, worker. Let, but Let me just yeah. say this, Brad, if I might. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you unequivocally that Mr. O'Keefe paid us $100,000 in settlement, but this morning I had a chance to review the settlement that, that we had with Ms. Giles. And uh, as to that, it's a confidential settlement, so I cannot say anything regarding the amount. Mm -hmm. And with respect to that, I simply have to say no comment. Fair However, enough. What, yeah. what I can tell you is that uh, if you consider the 125000 that Bart paid and the time that O'Keefe spent and what they were able to do by the misuse of the megaphone mm -hmm. and the propaganda machine that is Fox News, they were really quite cost effective. They the were able to put out of business an organization that had successfully registered almost half a million voters yeah. during the 2008 political campaigns. Mm -hmm. They were able to put out of existence an organization that, as you said, lasted 40 years and had many programs for low-income people and that was designed to help organize and help people with respect to earn income tax credits, with respect to obtaining housing, and with respect to organizing themselves to be politically effective in making their voice heard in the halls of Congress, and instead what, what we find is that that organization was just eviscerated. Now, in fairness, you have to say that uh, ACORN itself was not without fault. There are a couple of problems. One is organizational defects and some failure of oversight uh, that the organization had, and the second is that at least in the East Coast tape, some of the people had some improvident choice of language. But here in California, uh, there were four tapings, mm -hmm. and they were all universally, if you looked into them, completely innocent, as a matter of fact, honest and legal from the point of view of the ACORN employees. Indeed. Vera, and if I could, let me just yeah. tell you what they are. In San Diego, Mr. Vera was approached. Now, Juan Carlos Vera speaks Spanish as his first language. When they first come in, if you watch the videotape, you'll say that Mr. Vera is confused and doesn't quite understand what they're asking. Early on, he says, well, I know somebody in the DA's office. Maybe I can help you, believing that they wanted to turn in the pimp that... Uh, that they were Giles claiming that Giles, right, yeah. ...rid of. Then at a later time, they say, no, 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 we want to smuggle in some underage prostitutes. They're from Honduras. And so uh, at this point, uh, Mr. Vera began to play along. However, within 
10 or 20 minutes of the ending of their conversation, he then spoke to the National City Police Department, to a relative of his who was a homicide detective there, to report that he had met some people and didn't know whether they were crazy or whether they were really involved in violating the law, but he wanted to try to provide the information. That uh, detective, Alejandro Hernandez, then later contacted somebody in his department who contacted the San Diego Police Department Human Trafficking Unit, and they all gave the message back to Mr. Vera, get some more information from O'Keefe. Now, by that time, O'Keefe had his videotape, and he refused to have any further conversation about where and when this smuggle would take place or what he was going to be doing. Interestingly enough, though, uh, the person who was working with Breitbart's organization, a man named Michael Flynn, emailed O'Keefe on the 7th of September 2009, about two weeks after the production of the videotape, saying, I want to check if Juan filed a police report on the situation. It is a bit ambiguous whether he is really trying to help you smuggle in the girls or just playing along to set a legal trap. Any other context would be helpful. Thanks. Despite that, O'Keefe made no check to see if there had been a report made to the police. And about 10 days after that, on the 17th of September, Fox News blasted this video of Juan Carlos Vera destroying his reputation and actually costing him his job. I'm speaking with Eugene Iredale, the San Diego attorney for Juan Carlos Vera, the former Acorn worker who uh, was able to win a $100,000 settlement against James O'Keefe. We learned about it last week. Uh, and I've got just a, a minute or two here. And indeed, by the way, uh, Gene, uh, I, I loved, I don't have time to play it here, but from his deposition in your case, uh, James O'Keefe said when he was asked why he didn't follow up on the uh, Vera story, as Mike uh, Flynn, that email uh, you mentioned, uh, had discussed. And by the way, Mike Flynn, atrocious journalist, and I put journalist in quotes from Breitbart News. The fact that even he was worried about it uh, says a lot. But James O'Keefe replied, I did want to follow up. I just didn't end up following up. That (laughs) that was his explanation uh, for real. Uh, Absolutely. In the minute or two, uh, Gene, let me just get in some real quick questions because I'm going to have to let you go here, but I I want to get in some real quick questions. Why did you not file? You filed for invasion of privacy. Uh, Why not defamation? Well, because we did not want this case to become a an examination or a prosecution of ACORN. And there could have been the argument made, well, based on what we found out, we had a legitimate uh, belief that what we were saying was the truth. And so I didn't want to get into that debate because they had clearly violated the law that we were asserting, and I wanted to make it a clean smash victory. Uh, now, by the way, yeah. O'Keefe also was sued for illegally tape recording in a similar manner in Pennsylvania. He settled that case. He also violated the law of the state of Maryland, which has a similar law to that of California. Now, I, I wanted just, if I could, before I leave, just to share one other thing for sure. you to show you how ridiculous and unfair this was. Mm-hmm. There was the Acorn employee in San Bernardino named Tricia Kelke. Yeah who heard these characters giving their spiel and telling their story. She murdered her own husband. I heard about it. She killed her own husband, didn't That's she? right. She <laughs> thought they were so ridiculous that they w- she thought, well, this is a joke. They're putting me on. So she said, 
All you can do is smuggle illegal prostitutes. Hell, I kill people. I killed my ex-husband. I, <laughs> I shot him in the head. Now, before Fox broadcast that, they could have verified one way or the other. Forget O'Keefe. He, he's a kid. Forget Hannah Giles. She's just a young woman. Even forget Breitbart because he's a propagandist. But you would think that a news organization that has any claim to legitimacy, any claim to ethics, would check out before they broadcast that and blast it out. Oh, this woman is not only a potential a sister of pimps, she is also a murderess. Right. You would think they would have checked that out with the police or find something out to verify or refute that claim. But in fact, it turned out that the San Bernardino police, after it was broadcast, had to go and speak to her ex-husband who said, like Mark Twain, the reports of my demise, as you can see, were much in error. In fact, the San Bernardino police, within minutes, frankly, after the story came out, looked into it uh, and, and said that, in fact, that this woman in San Bernardino, in fact, had two husbands, two former husbands. Both of them were very much alive, and that would have been easy to check. But uh, what's remarkable here, uh, Gene Iredale, is that those videotapes are still up on YouTube, those videotapes are still up, uh, and the stories with them are still up all over uh, the Breitbart site. Why did, uh, as part of your settlement, why did you not at least have him remove the ones that had to do with uh, Juan Carlos Vera? Remove those from uh, from YouTube, from the Internet, and, and from Breitbart News in the 30 seconds or so we have here. Well, actually, uh, they have been taken down in many of the sites. They've not been taken down in all of them. But they do have an arguable claim that even though they were illegally recorded, their dissemination is protected. Uh, I didn't want to fight that fight with them because we felt they had so clearly violated the law. As I said, we wanted to make the case as clean as possible and avoid any... Uh, of the inflammatory allegations that they could have hurled at it. Gene, why did the other uh, three California workers, Acorn workers, uh, not similarly file suit against uh, James O'Keefe, Hannah Giles, and, and even uh, Andrew Breitbart? Well, I, I know that Teresa Kelke tried to get counsel but was unable to get a lawyer who understood enough to be able to press the case. The two people in Los Angeles, I don't know, because all three of them had, I promise you, an iron clad, open and shut case uh, under Penal Code Section 632. I think they did as well, and uh, the fact that he settled, uh, and I hadn't been familiar with the settlement, I'll have to talk to you about it offline, uh, Eugene uh, Iredell, about the uh, Pennsylvania violation, because in Pennsylvania they have a similar law where both parties have to be aware uh, of uh, secret wiretapping. So I'm, uh, I'll have to talk to you about that offline, however, but I do appreciate uh, your coming on to the broadcast today and uh, for standing up uh, with Juan Carlos Vera and getting at least some accountability finally uh, in, in this case, Gene. Well, Brad, I also want to thank you because I've followed your postings. You were one of the first people who was on to this, and you were also, I think, the most persistent and the most indefatigable investigator of the entire situation, O'Keefe, Breitbart, and Fox News. And unfortunately, uh, because the national media, including the New York Times and the major networks, were unable to do what you did, 
the tragedy of Acorn occurred as it occurred. It did indeed. Thank you for the very kind words. I'm just doing my job because unlike uh, <laughs> James O'Keefe, Andrew Breitbart, and apparently even the New York Times, I am a journalist. And, uh, you know, whatever James O'Keefe says, he is anything but. And, uh, well, uh, actually, I invited him to join us here. I'll talk about that in a moment. But I'm going to let you go, Gene. Really appreciate your work, and I hope to talk to you again soon, sir. Thank you very much for all your uh, your time here. You're very welcome. Thank you. Invite James O'Keefe to join us on the broadcast today. He had complained that uh, it was, where's this quote here on Twitter? Lies and lies and more lies from Jurna fascists uh, about his settlement with Juan Carlos Vera. He said, put me on TV so I could tell the real story. Well, I invited him via the Twitters to join us on the broadcast live, which cannot be deceptively edited. And uh, he said, to have the guts to put me on. Well, we have the guts to put him on. It took him about a day to have the guts to reply to me. He finally did late last night. Uh, as you can tell, he's not coming on the show, unfortunately. But you can check out his reply and my reply to him late night last night on the Twitters over at bradblog.com. I think you'll find it amusing. We have the guts to bring on James O'Keefe, but apparently he ain't got the guts to join us. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be back with the Voting Rights Act, Antonin Scalia, Desi Doyen, and much more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast on KPFK. My Amityville Horror revisits the 1975 haunting of the Lutz home in Amityville, Long Island, made famous by a best-selling book and motion picture. Thirteen months prior to the Lutz moving in, the former owner, Ronald DeFeo, massacred his family. Subjected to ghostly hauntings and a full array of terrifying paranormal activities, the Lutz family fled after only 28 days in residence. Through the reminiscences of one of the now-grown children, Daniel, the film examines whether his account is the stuff of truth or of delusion. My Amityville Horror opens on March 15th at the Arena Cinema Theater, 1625 North Las Palmas Avenue in Hollywood. A limited number of tickets have been offered to KPFK Film Club members who are invited to call the front desk at 818-985-2711. Dial zero for operator during business hours for a pair of tickets good Sunday through Thursday only. And if you aren't already a film club member, please consider joining at kpfk.org. What is wrong? And the evidence is clear. I'm not alone. There are thousands of us here. This is my democracy. You won't go telling me my vote don't matter anymore. And it's not worth fighting for. 
fighting for your vote and your democracy right here on the broadcast on KPFK. I'm Brad Friedman. We ran a little bit long with Gene Iredale, so I'm going to have to hold the uh, hold my uh, my drone conversation until next week, and I'm going to have to make this uh, business on the Voting Rights Act here as quick as I can. But it's very important. Because I want to get this out, uh, a lot of people have been talking about the Voting Rights Act, the hearing uh, held at the Supreme Court a week or two ago, and Justice Antonin Scalia's obnoxious remark about the Voting Rights Act as a, quote, perpetuation of racial entitlement. Well, that comment, frankly, wasn't the half of it from uh, uh, Justice Scalia, the self-described conservative the self-described uh, strict constructional uh, strict constructionalist constitutionalist originalist he is as we learned in this little rant this little hissy fit he threw uh during this voting rights act hearing a few weeks ago he is anything but that let me set this up for you very quickly and then i'm going to play uh some of his what he had to say during this hearing we'll stop and start and i'll give you the the actual facts uh, that show what a hypocrite he is, what a liar he is about being a conservative, about being a strict constructionist. Uh, the, the part of the Voting Rights Act in question is Section 5. That's part of the nearly 50-year-old bipartisan bill that almost all observers, right, left, and otherwise, see as a smashing success. It ended the Jim Crow era, at least it moved us out of the Jim Crow era in the South. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was unique in that it required some of the states, mostly in the South, which had uh, the worst record for racial discrimination in elections, it required them, and still does require them, to get approval for new laws that relate to elections, to get approval from either the Department of Justice or federal court before they can put these laws into place to make sure that these laws are not discriminatory. So they can't just put these in place and then wait until after the election and, you know, somebody can uh, sue afterwards and said, you know, my right was lost, my vote was depressed. No, they have to do it in advance. And, in fact, Section 5 was used several times uh, in the 2012 election to keep uh, uh, states like Texas and South Carolina from instituting polling place photo ID restrictions at the polling place, which would have kept thousands from being able to cast their vote in the uh, November general election last year. But this law, this Voting Rights Act, is so popular that it has been reauthorized four different times. Uh, Some of these provisions, like Section 5, were in fact temporary when they were put in place. And uh, for, uh, I believe it was first for five years, and then it was renewed again for five more years, and then seven years. And then it was most recently renewed in 2006. It was reauthorized by the U.S. Congress after 10 months of deliberation, 21 different hearings, some 15,000 pages of evidence, finding that, yes, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is still needed and still should apply to these uh, different states, some 16 different uh, jurisdictions, all or parts of some states across the country, as I say, mostly in the South. This legislation, after all of that deliberation, when the uh, Congress finally did their job correctly, they ended up voting in the U.S. Senate 98 to nothing to approve this uh, the Voting Rights Act for another 25 years. Mind you, 
The Voting Rights Act is meant to enforce uh, the 15th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, ratified in 1870 after the Civil War, which says basically two sentences. The rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That's section one. Section two, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. It took 95 years, but that appropriate legislation was the Voting Rights Act, which was reauthorized for 25 years in 2006 by a Republican Congress and signed by a Republican president. And yet, two weeks ago, in the U.S. Supreme Court, here was Antonin Scalia. And, uh, uh, Ray, we're going to start and stop this a little bit as we go. Uh, I think it's number three, actually. Is Scalia? Good. Uh, we'll start and stop this a little bit, so, so stand by. But here was what uh, Scalia had to say to the Solicitor General, uh, James Verrilli. Congress wasn't writing on a blank slate in 2006. Congress was making a judgment about whether this formula, which had everyone agrees, and in fact, Mr. Ryan's case depends on the proposition that Section 5 was a big success. Well, maybe it was making that judgment, Mr. Verrilli, but, but that's, that's, that's a problem that I have. Look, this court doesn't like to get involved in, 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 in racial questions such as this. Okay, stop the tape, stop the tape. It doesn't like to get involved in racial questions such as this. That's what he says. He says, oh, maybe Congress wanted to approve it, uh, but, you know, we don't like to get into racial questions. And then, of course, he went ahead and said what he had to say. It's something that can be left, left to Congress. The problem here, however, is suggested by the comment I made earlier, that the initial enactment of this legislation in a, in a time when the need for it was so much more abundantly clear was uh, in the Senate. There, there, It was double digits against it. And that was only a five-year term. And it was reenacted five years later, again for a five-year term, double digits against it in the Senate. Then it was reenacted for seven years, single digits against it. Uh, then enacted for 25 years, uh, eight Senate votes against it. And this last enactment, not a single vote in the Senate against it. And the House is pretty much the same. Now, I don't think that's attributable to the fact that it is so much clear now that we need this. I think it is attributable. Okay, hang on, good. What he's saying there is that this was reapproved over and over again. Each time that it was approved, it had fewer and fewer votes against it. He finds this, Antonin Scalia finds this to be a problem. Very likely attributable to a phenomenon that is called, called uh, perpetuation of racial entitlement. Uh, it's been written about. Okay, stop. He says perpetuation of racial entitlement. It has been written about. Who has written about it? One Antonin Scalia wrote about it about 20 years ago uh, in a case. Uh, as far as other people writing about perpetuation of racial entitlement, I don't know. But you got Scalia referring to himself with no evidence whatsoever, saying that the reason that people no longer vote against the Voting Rights Act is because they are perpetuating racial entitlement. They are afraid of being uh, called uh, racist if they vote against it. Never mind the fact that maybe they have found that this law works. No, in his mind, it's all because they're afraid of being called racists. 
whenever a society adopts racial entitlements, it is very difficult to get out of them through the normal political processes. I don't think there is anything to be gained by any senator to vote against continuation of this act. And I am fairly confident it will be reenacted in perpetuity unless, unless a court can say it does not comport with the Constitution. You have to show when you're treating different states differently that there's a good reason for it. Uh, that's, that's the concern that those of us who, uh, uh, who have some questions about this statute have. It's, it's a concern that this is not the kind of a question you can leave to Congress. There are certain dis districts in the House that are black districts by law just about now. And even the Virginia senators, they have no interest in voting against this. The state government is not their government. And they're going to lose, they're going to lose votes if they do not reenact the Voting Rights Act. Even the name of it is wonderful, the Voting Rights Act. Who's going to vote against that in the future? Yes, who's going to vote against voting rights? The Voting Rights Act. The name of it is wonderful, since it helps establish voting rights. Justice Scalia. Now, he says he's fairly confident that it will be reenacted in perpetuity unless a court can say that it does not comport with the Constitution. He has decided that this is the court's job to come in to this legislation that was supported 98 to nothing in 2006 after 10 months of deliberation, 21 hearings, 15,000 pages of evidence. Justice Antonin Scalia believes it's his job. Forget about separation of powers that you may have heard conservatives pretend they believe in. Forget about separation of powers between the judiciary and the uh, uh, legislative branch and the executive branch. Antonin Scalia thinks it's his job to come in there and stop what the Congress did. Why? Because they did it 98 to nothing. It was the most popular bill uh, that you could find in the U.S. Senate. Therefore, it's the Supreme Court's job to end this law. He goes on to say that this is not the kind of question you can leave to Congress. Oh, really, Mr. Scalia? You pretend to be a strict constructionist, a constitutionalist. Have you read the 15th Amendment, the one that says in Section 2, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation? Which part of the Congress do you not understand, Mr. Scalia? It is their role to pass this law. It is their role to enforce the 15th Amendment. It is not your role to decide just because you feel like it that this law is a quote-unquote racial entitlement. That was an offensive comment. But what's worse is the fact that Justice Antonin Scalia pretends to be a constitutionalist, a conservative, that he believes in the Constitution itself, and obviously he doesn't. Obviously, Justice Antonin Scalia believes in what Justice Antonin Scalia believes in. Forget about the Constitution. He's a hypocrite. All right. I suspect we'll be talking about this more in the future. The decision on uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, will be is expected in June or July. And can you tell it uh, ticked me off just a little bit? It sure did. All right. Let's cheer me up. 
with a little bit of uh, green it's news. It's not easy being <laughs> green. That always cheers me up. It seems you blend in with so many other. Get in here, Desi. Cheer me up. Cheer me up with your green news, which is always light and frothy. Hey, Desi. Yeah, it's not depressing at all. Ever. Welcome back to the broadcast. Good to have you here. Good to uh, run. I know we're running late here. Yes. Should we get right to this uh, yes, green please. news report? Our, our latest green news report, and maybe you'll have some follow-ups, follow-ups if I left you any time for it. Kick it, Ray. Anti-nuke protests mark second anniversary of Fukushima disaster. Why does the Navy care about sea level rise? It's like, well, we're the Navy. We tend to build our bases at sea level. Navy's top commander in the Pacific warns climate change is the biggest threat to national security. Is flammable ice the next big energy source? Forests move into the warming Arctic. Plus... Score one for the Sharks. All of that and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comments. You don't need us to tell you that gas prices are back on the rise. You don't need us to tell you that gas prices are back on the rise. You don't need us to tell you that gas prices are back on the rise. You don't need us to tell you that gas prices are back on the rise. You don't need us to tell you. 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 Gas prices are on the rise. I know. Thank you, local news. Now that you put it that way, I don't need you at all. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, some very good news today. If things don't work out here on this planet, we learned today via NASA that the Mars rover has discovered that Mars was once inhabitable. <laughs> well, Will that help? Well, sort of, not really. Uh, NASA says Mars could have supported living microbes because they found indicators of ancient water. I, Don't know, know I, if that'll apply for us I, today. I've been looking for any kind of good news, and once again, you you ruin it for oh, me. Oh, so sorry. Thanks for nothing, Desi Doyne. What do you have for us today? Well, we got lots of climate news, but first, on the second anniversary of the worst nuclear accident in a generation, thousands of anti-nuclear protesters across Japan commemorated the earthquake and tsunami that led to the meltdown of three reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in 2011. They rallied to demand that the government abandon nuclear power. The stricken plant itself is now in cold shutdown. Workers have begun the process of decommissioning, decontaminating, and disposing of hundreds of thousands of tons of radioactive waste and spent fuel. It's a process that is expected to take at least 40 years and cost over $100 billion, all paid for by Japan's taxpayers. Are the crippled reactors still producing uh, radioactive waste at this point that has to be uh, done away with? Yes, they're still having to go through the same cooling process that they did right after the uh, accident. And they're still having to find new places to put this radioactive water. Yes. The drive to replace nuclear in Japan's energy mix has led to a potential energy breakthrough of sorts. Japan announced on Tuesday they have successfully extracted natural gas from offshore frozen methane hydrates, a world first. Now, methane hydrate is methane gas trapped in slushy ice in the deep ocean. It's literally flammable ice. But scientists not involved with the project warn that not enough is known about the impacts. For example, any methane leaking into the atmosphere is 20 times more potent at 
warming than carbon dioxide, plus burning it releases CO2. So a new energy source, but really just a new way to burn fossil fuel? Uh, pretty much. Global warming has moved vegetation north in the last 30 years. A new NASA study shows forests are now growing like gangbusters in the warming Arctic and have moved seven degrees north in latitude in just 30 years. That's in keeping with the results of a new update to the famous hockey stick temperature graph, now showing that global temperature is the warmest it's been in 4,000 years. And the speed of rising temperatures is unprecedented since at least the last ice age 11,000 years ago. Other than that, nothing worry about (laughs) and the latest measurements of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere show it has jumped to 395 parts per million since last year which NOAA scientists now say makes it increasingly likely we will overshoot the limit of two degrees celsius temperature rise that governments have agreed on as a goal unless emissions are reduced and yet with all of that over the past couple of weeks the new york times has shut down its green desk and its green blog genius Climate change is a primary threat to national security, too. The top Navy commander in the Pacific, Admiral Samuel Locklear, told the Boston Globe on Friday that the biggest looming national security threat is not cybersecurity or the nuclear threats of dictators, but climate change, saying, quote, you have the real potential here in the not-too-distant future of nations displaced by rising sea level. In a speech featured on climatecrocs.com, the former chief oceanographer of the Navy explains the threat to U.S infrastructure. Look at where our oil refineries are. It's all at sea level. There's tremendous infrastructure that this will have an issue for. Finally, score one for sharks. Recent surveys have concluded that industrialized fishing operations have killed 100 million sharks in just the past few decades. But a new draft international global wildlife agreement signed this week would protect five new shark species and two manta ray species. For more on that story and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via iTunes, listen to us on your mobile device via Stitcher and the TuneIn radio apps. Find us and like us on the Facebook and follow us 24-7 on the Twitters at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And you don't need us to tell you that this has been your Green News Report. Well done, Desi Doyen. Great Jaws music. I ran late, so I'm getting out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer here. Uh, Margo Paez, our super-duper associate producer. Come back, Margo. All is forgiven. My thanks to Ray Palaez, our soundboard operator today, and uh, to my guest Eugene Iredale. If you missed any portion of the program, check it out. I'll have it up tonight at bradblog.com. Coming up next, John Wiener in the 4 o'clock report. He's going to be talking about Rachel Maddow, who is in town tomorrow. You don't want to miss that. Stay tuned for that. We'll see you next week. Same Brad time, same Brad channel. Until then, tweet me at the Brad blog, and we'll see you at bradblog.com. Good night, America.